It's a great point by Alan Hirsch. It's uh, critical to our walk with Christ that we consider and understand and implement all of God's teaching into our lives. Because if we selectively choose only the parts of the Bible that appeal to us, to submit to, or if we only consider the scriptures that we understand and neglect those that we don't, we risk forming a worldview, even a a Christian worldview, that is incomplete. And the danger in doing so is that when, uh, even subliminally sometimes, we, we allow that to happen, we fill in the gaps with other philosophies from the world, or uh, from our upbringing, or from religious traditions. Or we fill in those gaps with our own feelings and convictions about God, even though those feelings and convictions may not agree with Scripture. And so we can end up in a place where we have an errant view of God and the Christian faith that is an amalgamation, a a blend of the true Christian faith and some other set of principles or beliefs that are incongruent with the Scriptures. And that at best limits our ability to appropriately apply the truths of Scripture to our own lives, and at worst, can lead to a form of pluralism, the the blending of religions, or the belief that uh, all religions are equally valid and that they all ultimately lead us to salvation. That's pluralism. And I personally believe that there are a lot of professing Christians today who unknowingly have satisfied their search for the truth with a dangerous worldview recipe that includes a partial understanding of the scriptures along with a healthy dose of the current social leanings that are trending in pop culture, maybe a sprinkling of secular philosophy, you know, a quote on your Starbucks cup from Oprah or whatever else makes us feel good. But the scriptures don't give us that liberty. In fact, true liberty, true freedom is only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the whole counsel of it. We have a mandate by God to keep ourselves accountable to each other and to Him and and to His Word. And that is a big part of what keeps us from drifting away from the truth and developing uh, some pseudo-Christian worldview that, again, I believe is fairly prominent in our society today, in large part because we've rejected accountability. Uh, And instead, we've embraced individualism. So taking the time and making the effort to understand the whole counsel of God, this entire collection of books uh, within the Bible, is really, really important. And by the way, that's a lifelong process. Okay, in Acts 20, 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Okay, so the point isn't that we go to seminary or take a Bible class or attend Sunday school for X amount of years and then we have it all figured out. No one has it it all figured out. And we should understand and admit that we are all in the process of learning. And in that process, we both disciple those who are maybe not as far along in their own walk with Christ... We teach and point them to Jesus with what we've received, what's been revealed to us from the Word of God in our own process of learning and being discipled. And then we equally submit ourselves to teaching and discipleship from those who are farther along in their understanding and scholarship of the Scriptures. Okay, And that could be a friend, a parent, a teacher, a pastor. And so, even as I teach 
and disciple and shepherd others, I'm also very much submitted to other people. I'm accountable, obviously, to my wife, uh, to other pastors and teachers who are much farther down the road in their walk with Christ or their understanding of Scripture than I am. I meet with other ministers and teachers of the Bible who disciple me. These are believers that I'm submitted to, and I continually read and, and study, of course, the Bible. But I also tithe my time to reading theological literature from proven scholars, not just the latest fad that's come out, champions of the faith, teachers who are able to open the scriptures and expound on their meaning. That's called exegesis, by the way, and that's what we do here every Sunday, we exegete the scriptures. We go verse by verse and we explain what the passage is saying. And there are men like Spurgeon and Wesley and Tozer and Augustine, John Piper, N.T. Wright, R.C. Sproul, D.A. Carson, William Lane Craig. These, these are men of God that expound on the scriptures. Are these men perfect? Of course not. Do I always agree with everything they say? No, I don't. But these are people who have devoted a lifetime to their own education and understanding of uh, the interpretation of scriptures. They're gifted by the Holy Spirit with the ability to teach. And so we stand to learn a lot from them and others. And of course, the Holy Spirit is ultimately our teacher. He reveals the word to us. Uh, but that can often and often does come through the ministry of others as we study the word of God together. So the point is there are people accountable to me. And I'm certainly accountable to others. That's mutual accountability. And that's what we're all commanded by God to participate in. This is what we see modeled in Scripture. It's all throughout the book of Acts uh, and really most of the New Testament. And so that is all a bit of a review, okay, of last week's message. So now as we continue our sermon series today, the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to work through the last half of chapter 5 of Acts and complete last week's sermon entitled Accountable. Okay, last week we, we talked about accountability to each other within the church, and in our text today we see the apostles expressing their accountability to God. And this is then point two of our sermon outline. If you're taking notes uh, from last week, if you missed last Sunday's message, it's on our website, it's upcountrychurch.org. You can go there and listen to it. But we're going to jump back into our story now where we left off last week and see what we can learn about accountability to God, okay? We'll start at Acts 5, uh, verse 17. And this is picking up the story. Just as all the believers were gathering on a regular basis uh, at the temple complex uh, in a large outdoor area called Solomon's Portico. It was a, a covered colonnade, like a porch. And all kinds of these amazing miracles were taking place. There were people gathering by the thousands, sometimes daily, and the church was growing by the thousands. Without a doubt, this was an extraordinary time for the church and a profoundly unsettling time for the religious leaders of the day who were uh, feeling very threatened by the display of power and the depth of teaching about Jesus that was happening in their own backyard. And so... Finally, the religious court decides to take action uh, to, to attempt to stamp out this fire of God that was rapidly spreading through the ministry of the apostles who were leading the church. Okay, so let's turn there and we'll read it together, uh, chapter 5, and we'll start at verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Okay, 
Verse 17 says that the religious leaders were filled with jealousy, which is, of course, why they had the apostles locked up in prison. The Sadducees weren't concerned uh, about potential false teaching. They weren't trying to protect God's chosen ones from heretics. They weren't trying to uh, protect the people from, from some false religion. They were trying to protect their own power that they exercised over the people. And so as soon as they see the masses of people who formerly followed them, the Pharisees and Sadducees, now following the apostles and coming to uh, the temple to receive teaching from them, the religious leaders in power became filled with jealousy. So their motivation for putting the apostles in prison was completely self-serving. Likewise, it's important that we in church today are honest with ourselves about our motivations when we enter into any discussion about accountability within the church. Because although uh, we're account, uh, commanded to hold one another accountable within the body of Christ, and particularly with church leadership, as it is our responsibility to guard the congregation from false teachers, from false doctrines, uh, to maintain order in the church and to lead the corporate worship in times of teaching, we have to be very careful and completely honest when it comes to passing judgments on other ministries. Because it is just as easy today for the pastor of a church to become jealous of another church or a ministry. You see it all the time. And to begin to speak out against that ministry or warn people to stay away from that church when in truth we're operating out of a sense of envy instead of a sense of love for the body. Okay? So accountability, yes, definitely. But we should always check our motivations with honesty and humility when speaking about or addressing any issues concerning another believer or another ministry. And that applies to all of us, by the way, but particularly to pastors who have a voice or some influence with their congregations. Okay? Verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said... Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Okay, at daybreak, the crowds would gather at the temple for the morning sacrifices. So the apostles were very clearly being instructed to teach the truth of the gospel at the temple to the masses. The angel didn't say, uh, go to the local coffee house and quietly share your faith in the corner over a latte. He didn't say, uh, start a secret gathering in your living room so as not to offend the public. The angel of the Lord led them out of the prison and told them to stand in the temple, a very uh, public place, and to speak to the people all the words of life. That is to say, go to the masses, the, the most public place in town, and proclaim the whole counsel of God. Now, there's a time and a place uh, for one-on-one -on -one evangelism, although it's, it isn't hardly in Scripture at all. There's a couple of examples. There are almost no examples, very few, of personal evangelism, by the way. Almost all evangelism was done through the church in Scripture. But there's a time and a place for that today, for certain. And small groups in your living room can be very effective and directed by God. Okay, So I'm not disparaging those methods of sharing the gospel. But the fact is, we are called to live out our lives and our testimony as Christians in a very public way. And that's very much a part of being accountable to God, as we'll see 
by the apostles' response to the high priest and the council in just a moment. Sometimes in church, you know, we use churchy kind of phrases a lot. Sometimes we talk about planting a seed of the gospel in someone's life because we don't want to force the message of Christ on them. So we try to be very subtle in our presentation of the truth about Jesus Christ to others. And in certain situations, that can be valid. There can be validity to that, okay? But we should be careful not to use that as an excuse for not overtly living out our Christian faith in public. I think that maybe Christians in the Western world have been too concerned with blending in to what's acceptable in contemporary culture for too long. And by the way... uh, I'm not talking about standing on the street corner downtown and screaming you know, Bible verses about hell at everyone that walks by. Because there's no expression of the love of Christ in that that I can see. What I'm talking about is living our lives in public in a manner that is unashamedly Christian. It's the old, uh, what would Jesus do idea that unfortunately got turned into a fashion statement. The point is, to make every decision that you make, both in private and in public, in line with the whole counsel of God. And when you do that, standing out from the crowd will become unavoidable. Your actions and your words and your attitude will be noticeably different from the crowd. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit will draw people to Himself through you. And and yet there will also be others who will be repelled at the same time. Just as we read it, In verse 13 last week, some kept their distance from the apostles. There were many who wanted nothing to do with them. Yet others were drawn to what God was doing through them. And the same will be true of us as we live out our Christianity, our faith, very publicly. When you're at Walmart trying to buy your stuff and you're standing in line with 300 other people in one of the only two checkout lines that they've opened for the day, And everybody is angry. Trust me, a Christ-like attitude will speak volumes to the people around you. Yet I've seen Christians act just like everyone else in line. Ticked off and, and letting everyone know it around them. And I've been on both sides of the coin here. I can tell you from firsthand experience that when you express the love of Christ in public, particularly in situations where that would be unusual, People take notice because it's something very uncommon in our culture today. And some will be repelled by it. And others will be drawn to it. But the point is we're accountable to live as people of faith in public just as much as we are in private. Okay? Let's keep reading. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what uh, this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They were worried about them starting a revolt. 
But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. I love uh, the apostles' response here. Because they make no effort to defend themselves. Rather, they defend the gospel. You see, it really is all about Jesus Christ. Our uh, society, which places a high value on individualism, uh, likes to make everything about us. But here, as the apostles are being grilled by those in authority who want to kill them, we see these men of God making no defense for themselves. As they are always focused on the gospel. Why? Because they're accountable to God for every word, every action. And therefore they take every opportunity to speak the truth about Christ, even to their own detriment. Okay, one of the aspects of being accountable to God is being obedient to His word. Accountability equals obedience. In verse 29, Peter says, We must obey God rather than men. This is the same Peter who later wrote, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. First Peter 2, 13 and 14. So how does that work? One day Peter says we must obey God rather than men. And later on he, he says be subject to every human institution. Isn't that a contradiction? The answer is in verse 13, where Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In other words, everything that we do, even in obeying uh, the authorities on this earth, should be done for the Lord's sake, should be done for His glory, for His will, for His pleasure. And so the point of, of demarcation from obeying uh, the authorities of the earth is the moment those authorities direct us to do something that is opposed to the will of God. That's why Peter can say, we must obey God rather than men, because those men were commanding him to disobey the will and command of God. And that is unacceptable to Peter and to the other apostles, because they understood that ultimately they were accountable to God above all others. And that meant obedience to God's will first. Okay, And then Peter follows up that statement by saying in verse 32 that the Holy Spirit is given by God to those who obey Him. Accountability equals obedience. When Peter and the other apostles are instructed by the angel to leave the prison and go right back to the temple to preach the gospel, the very activity that landed them in prison in the first place, we never see them ask, is this action safe for us? What about our safety? It's going to happen to us. We never hear them say that. We never hear them consider, well, is this socially acceptable? How will this make other people feel? Because they don't seem to be too concerned uh, with themselves or with what men prefer they do. Rather, they appear to be solely concerned with what God wants them to do. So, why do we obey our employers uh, and the government the police, our family doctor, and many other people in our lives, but not God. 
because we fear the consequences of disobeying our employer. We fear losing our job. We fear the consequences of disobeying the government. If, you know, if we don't pay our taxes, we fear the government levying our wages or confiscating our goods. We fear the consequences of disobeying the police. We don't want to go to jail. We fear the consequences of disobeying the doctor's orders because we fear getting sick or not recovering from an illness or an injury. But we don't always fear God. In fact, there are elements of the church that have perverted the doctrine of grace to the point that there is no longer any need to fear God. And therefore, sadly, the fear of God has been wholly lost on some elements of the body of Christ today. And yet Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, Psalms 111.10 all say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of understanding. Yet talking about fear and consequences is not a popular subject. We'd rather stress grace and love. And certainly we don't ignore grace and love. Those are obviously central to the gospel. In fact, we, we talk about grace and love here a lot. But there are entire doctrines being taught today in the church that only focus on grace and love because those sound much more inclusive. And as our society is pushing for tolerance, which is simply a way of saying anything goes and you have to be okay with that, as our culture demands tolerance, there are, there are some elements of the church that are caving to that pressure. And instead of preaching the whole counsel of God, being accountable to His Word, they've adopted a, a truncated gospel, as Alan Hirsch puts it, a shortened version of the teachings of Scripture. But we simply cannot cherry-pick the parts that we like and ignore the parts that we don't care for. There's a great article on John Piper's blog site, uh, Desiring God, written by David Mathis. It's entitled, Do You Pervert the Grace of God? And in it he says, Those of us who love His grace most will take the greatest care with His help to guard it from perversion. Because God's amazing grace has freed us to know ourselves as profoundly sinful, we will take precautions to keep ourselves from distorting the grace of God, our very life and joy, as a loophole for licentiousness or an excuse for minimizing Jesus' commands or curbing our God-given desire to please Him. With both feet in Scripture, not leaning on our parroted formulations, <clears throat> we will want to be able to say with Peter, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 1 Peter 5.12 In other words, we cannot use the doctrine of grace as an excuse to live however we please and then call ourselves followers of Christ. Jesus talked a lot more about hell than he did about heaven. Why? Because he loves us so much that he doesn't want any of us to go there. And so it's important that we maintain a healthy fear of the consequences of disobeying God, even as we thrive in the knowledge, absolutely, that there is forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion and love for every single person who submits themselves to him. Okay, God is not some kind of cosmic buddy. He's our pal you know, floating around in space somewhere. He is a holy, transcendent, all-knowing, all-powerful creator and ruler of the universe. Does He love us with compassion and grace? Of course He does. That's what makes His love for us 
all the more astounding and almost unfathomable because of who he is. And so we Christians armed with that knowledge should always approach him with an awestruck wonder in humility with a heart full of gratitude and praise. This is what I was talking about in the introduction to this sermon. We must seek to understand and teach the whole counsel of God. There has to be balance rather than some incomplete version of it. And that obedience to Him and to His Word comes in part, at least, by allowing ourselves to be accountable to each other and and to God and to His Word. Okay? So let's keep reading now. Verse 33. When they heard this... They were enraged and wanted to kill him, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Okay, Gamaliel was the most prominent rabbi of his day. And interestingly enough, he was the teacher of the Apostle Paul before he was the Apostle Paul. And although he belonged to the Pharisaical minority on the Sanhedrin, he had considerable influence. And to the great benefit of Peter and the other apostles who were about to be killed, Gamaliel, by God's providence, stands and makes a case uh, to the court for sparing their lives. Let's read it together. Verse 35. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care for what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudas rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Okay, so Thudas and Judas were revolutionaries who failed in their attempts at rebellion against the authorities of their day. We don't know much about Thudas specifically. Um, We know that there were many attempted rebellions after the death of Herod the Great in 4 BC, and Thudas was probably um, associated with one of those, probably led one of those. Uh, Judas the Galilean, on the other hand, is a well-known Uh, character in history for leading a tax revolt in AD 6 and as Gamaliel points out both of those rebellions came to nothing and he uses those failed attempts to mitigate uh, the response of the Sanhedrin against the followers of Christ and so just as things now are starting to look up for the apostles the Sanhedrin makes its final judgment to release them but just before they do they demonstrate to us the fact that accountability equals cost. Okay, accountability equals cost. There is always a cost associated with being accountable to God. Let's read uh, verse 40. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. If we just keep reading as they leave the council, the beating uh, reads almost like a minor event. But this was no minor event. This was scourging practiced by the Egyptians, the Romans, and the Jews. The apostles were beaten unmercifully with a whip up to 39 times. 
Always had to be divisible by three, according to Jewish tradition. So two lashings on the back, and then one on the chest. And then two in the back, one on the chest. Two in the back, one on the chest, and so on, until they reached up to 39 lashings. This was a brutal and often debilitating beating. In fact, many people died in the process of scourging. We're going to talk about the end result of accountability in our lives in a moment, but it's important that we understand that there is always a cost associated with accountability. Uh, In Matthew chapter 20, some of his followers wanted special places of honor in Jesus' kingdom, and they were asking him for that, and this was his response. Matthew 20, 22, and 23. Jesus says, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able. They had no idea what the cup meant. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. Some versions say, you will indeed drink my cup. What was the cup that Jesus was referring to? It's a metaphor for his suffering. Okay, and the word you in this verse in the original Greek language is a a plural pronoun. Jesus is addressing his disciples. He says, if you are to follow me, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, if you are going to submit your life to me and make yourself accountable to me, you will indeed pay a price. And here in Acts chapter 5, we see that prophetic statement by Jesus begin to come true. They're being scourged. And later they were all, uh, save one, martyred. So they were scourged just before their death. Just as Jesus was scourged right before his death. They were sharing in his cup. Likewise, if we are truly following Christ, we have to pay a price. There's very real suffering uh, in the loss of all things, as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3.8. You know, have you ever wanted something with all of your heart, you know, with all of your being, but you knew it wasn't what God wanted for you? If you've ever experienced that and chose the way of the Lord, you understand the price of being a Christian. Because we're to give up our own lives for the sake of Christ. And when we truly choose that path, there's always a cost. And ultimately, it leads to total submission to His way and His will. And there's often suffering associated with that. You may not be able to pursue that relationship that you want. You may not be able to go after that career choice that means more money, but maybe it doesn't satisfy his plan for you and your family or the ministry that he's called you to. You often have to give up your plans for his. And if you've ever experienced any of that, you understand how difficult that can be. It can create a very real hardship for you and your family and even your friends. There's always a cost to following Christ. But here's the great news. As we finish up chapter 5 today, accountability equals freedom. That sounds backwards. How can there be freedom and accountability in, uh, in submitting our lives to others, to God? That seems restrictive. The very opposite of freedom, but it is not. Let's read the last two verses of chapter 5. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing, and they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor, dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and praying Jesus as the Christ. 
The word rejoice in verse 41 is the Greek verb Cairo. Look, it means to thrive. These followers of Jesus have just been brutally beaten because of their association with him and their accountability, their submission to his will for their lives. Obviously, they're still hurting from the wounds they've just received. In fact, the pain had to be almost unbearable. There were scars from this beating. And yet in that moment, Scripture says they were thriving. How can that possibly be? Because they found freedom in their accountability to God. As they were obedient to Him, men threw them into prison, but they were set free. As they continued to preach the gospel, men brought them to trial yet again. Yet they were released. And then even after being horribly punished by men and suffering for doing God's will, they were able to thrive. How is that possible? It was possible because in their accountability to God, they were free from the shackles of everything that mankind tries to bind us with in this life. They were free from unhealthy fear of what might happen. Fear of what man may do to them. They were free from the shackles of sin. Free from the shackles of selfishness and greed and pride and all of the trappings of a life focused on themselves. In their obedience to God and their, their accountability to Him and to one another in the church, they learned how to thrive, come what may. That is true freedom. If you talk to many people, and in this line of work I talk to a lot of people about their lives, what you find out is, at the end of the day, what everyone wants out of this life is to thrive. People want to thrive. But interestingly enough, I don't think that most people know how to do that. I certainly didn't for a long time. And so we go through life trying out all sorts of things in the hope that what we're doing will help us to somehow thrive. And so there are people who work really hard at their career. And some of them are wildly successful. And yet many of them are unhappy with their life. Uh, there are people who buy new things, you know, and they're constantly buying things. And along with that comes a temporary sense of elation, satisfaction. But that eventually wears off and they end up right back where they started, dissatisfied with their life. Some people hope to thrive by relationships that don't honor God. And it, maybe it's sex. Uh, maybe it's influence and holding sway over other people, power. Some people desperately seek respect from others. We try all these different things with the expectation or at least uh, the ambition that by our efforts we will thrive. And yet the secret to thriving in this life that seems to elude so many people, which really isn't a secret at all, because it's stated and, and demonstrated plainly for us in Scripture, is to take all of that stuff, everything that we have in this life, every, everything we've accumulated, every desire, every goal, every plan, every relationship, every achievement, every disappointment, you just 
You just scrape it all up together. You take it all and you lay it down at the feet of the master and the creator of the universe. And you simply say, it's all yours. I give it all to you. You do with it and with me whatever you desire. At that moment, your life will change drastically because he's now working with a completely empty and willing vessel. And I'm talking to believers as well as unbelievers here because once I finally decided to give him everything as a believer, everything changed. Did life get easier? No. No, in fact, it got harder. Has there been a price to pay? You bet there has. Would I go back and change it? Oh, not for all the money and success in the world. Why? Because for the first time in my life, I began to thrive in pure submission and accountability to Him and His will for my life. I learned how to thrive. And that is a freedom that no one can take away from you. Let's pray. Jeannie.